from Kinexus. Today's podcast is the audio only recording of a webinar that I presented July 27th titled Strength in Numbers, Improving from the Bottom Up. You might get more out of this by looking uh, at the slides um, that are synced with the audio. You can find that in our Kinexus webinar library by going to kinexus.com slash webinars and clicking on uh, the link to uh, the recordings, so you can find that in the right sidebar, uh, or you can find uh, the recording on YouTube, on our Kinexus YouTube channel, along with all of our past webinars. Maybe you're listening because you watched uh, the webinar live and you're listening to it again um, somewhere along the line. I would love to hear your thoughts and comments. Um, I tried to add some thought-provoking things in here. Um, you can email me, mark at kinexus.com, or you can find me on Twitter, at Mark Graven. Here, uh, here, without further ado, is the webinar. Mark is the VP of Improvement and Innovation Services at Kinexus. He's been, I've been professionally working with Mark for almost six years now and has really become part of the DNA of Kinexus. I like to say he keeps us on the right track to make sure we're not getting um, too far out of the way of uh, making sure we're applying lean principles uh, through and through at our company. As many of you know, Mark is the author of a couple of great books, especially geared towards healthcare, lean hospitals and healthcare Kaizen. He speaks throughout the country. And uh, without further ado, let me. I think we're hopefully in for a fun ride today. You know, we talk a lot about bottom up improvement, continuous improvement. I want to explore some new topics and, and some ideas that have been new to me as I've been exploring more about change management and not just what is bottom-up improvement in terms of some of the tactics, but how do we change, how do we help an organization change? So I think there's two key questions that, uh, that, that come to mind. I want to explore these today. It might be a little bit of a roundabout way, but I hope everyone gets something useful out of the session today. The first question, how do we get frontline employees to participate in bottom-up improvement? I think that's often um, the question we're talking about, uh, trying to spur uh, participation and involvement. I think there's a second related question, maybe it should be the first question, that we often hear from people who are in internal lean process improvement, continuous improvement functions. How do we get executives to sponsor and support the idea of bottom-up improvement? What does that sponsorship and support and participation mean? So we want to think about bottom-up improvement. And um, I'll do the cliched presentation thing and say, well, you know, Webster's Dictionary says, oh, this says uh, bottoms up, uh, a toast telling people uh, to finish their drinks. This is not the definition of, of bottom-up, but it's a cheers. Uh, maybe we'll have a drink afterwards at the end of the day. It's 5 o'clock for somebody watching the webinar, and that's an attempt at levity that may have made people go, ugh, groans. I can't hear those groans, but I assume they're out there. I would expect nothing less from you, Mark, other than uh, a food and or um, drink reference at the beginning. Um, I'm thinking back to the the fun spread concept when we, when we were talking about spreading an improvement of the, the peanut butter award that we were giving to great improvements that could be spread throughout an organization. Yeah. Um, we, we can spread peanut butter, we can spread butter, we can spread improvement. Um, but if we talk about bottom-up improvement, there is you know, an organizational construct 
of the quote-unquote top, the quote-unquote bottom of the organization. Old language, kind of this organizational pyramid type structure. At the top of the pyramid, the structure is usually the CEO, the C-suite, our top executives, and then we move down the organization, VPs, middle management, supervisors, frontline managers, and the frontline employees. And there are some people who don't like this construct, and they say, well, it's is very hierarchical, it's insulting to those at the quote-unquote bottom of the organization. So there are some who talk about the inverted pyramid. You might say, well, turn that frown upside down. If you're frowning at the idea of calling your frontline value-adding important employees the quote-unquote bottom of the organization, um, there are some that talk about, all right, well, let's, let's put frontline employees at the top of the pyramid. And there are some who even add the customer as being the most important part of that construct. Now we can draw whatever number of shapes we like. And, and you know, I think as with a lot of things, if the organization just you know, changes the drawing but doesn't change the mindset, then that's gonna get people discouraged. That's not gonna lead to a culture of continuous improvement. The tradition, if you will, or maybe the norm in different organizations when we talk about top-down improvement often goes in line with this idea of command and control. And I love this clip art, uh, the stock photo that I purchased at one point with the executive and remote control. This kind of looks like Creed from the show The Office. I don't think that's him. But there's this notion that says, well, look, in a quote-unquote command and control environment, that executives are the smartest, that the executives and, and leaders make decisions, and if employees would just do what they were told to do, then we would have good results. Now, top-down improvement uh, often leads to a lot of problems. And I, I think I've used this example before in webinars, an example of a problem-solving problem where, look, executives uh, need to help frame strategy and direction for the organization. This is kind of the top-down um, communication um, that happens, even if we play catch-ball along the way. Um, that's important, but when the how gets communicated or pushed in a top-down way of how do we solve problems, how do we improve performance, we can often get into a lot of trouble. So I think back, this is 10 years ago now almost, when I was at a hospital standing in a hallway that looked like this, talking with a nurse manager. We're in early stages of uh, a lean journey for their department, if you will. And the nurse manager suddenly got distracted. She said, wait a minute, what's going on down there? And there were some uh, workers uh, with uh, a roll of carpet leaned up against the wall, and, and she was I need to go check this out. And they said, you know, we are here to literally roll out carpet. We are rolling out a change that somebody at literally the executive level had thought would be an improvement. Now, they, it wasn't about looks. It was about reducing noise. It was about improving patient satisfaction. Those are important goals that can and should be defined in a top-down way and cascaded through the organization. But what makes a culture of continuous improvement happen is when we, we challenge a team or employees to solve a problem and to figure out something on their own. So the nurse manager was not happy about the carpet because A, she hadn't been informed, B, she hadn't been involved in this decision, and, and she was, I think, rightfully, uh, rightfully concerned that her nurses were not going to like this because there was a separate top-down executive mandate that said, thou shalt roll portable computers 
on wheels all throughout the department, and it was harder to do so with a carpeted floor. So we had one top-down mandate conflicting with a different top-down mandate, and when they looked at data around what they were trying to improve, here are the patient satisfaction scores for this department. So you might look and say, ah, that looks like there was a, a jump up that occurred in the data. Part of the punchline to the story is that the carpet had been installed one month after the department started seeing the increase in patient satisfaction scores. And looking at it you know, over time, it looks like the carpet didn't really have any meaningful difference. It hurt employee satisfaction. So you think, well, how did this department improve patient satisfaction? It was because of a lot of different, guess what, bottom-up ideas from nurses and techs and others in the department about how to reduce noise at night. Lots and lots of little ideas. That's classic Kaizen. And it's a contrast to the typical kind of top-down mandates. So I've seen in many, many environments how powerful bottom-up improvement is. I think that's pretty well established. One resource around this is uh, an excellent book called The Idea-Driven Organization by a couple of professors, Alan Robinson and Dean Schroeder. If your organization is the type of organization that says, show me research that proves that bottom-up improvement is a good thing, you can point them to this book. They've done a lot of studies of different organizations. I did a podcast with Alan Robinson, one of the co-authors. You can find that and listen to that um, on my blog. But in the book, they use, for one example, Coca-Cola in Stockholm, Sweden. They analyzed all of the improvement work that was taking place, and you can see this pyramid. They had 8 million, blanking out on the name of the Swedish currency, Kronar, I think it is, 8 million worth of impact from all of the frontline ideas. The green belt projects and black belt projects contributed less to the overall equation. So you've got this inverse relationship. That, yeah, the black belt projects each saved on average 750,000. The green belt projects each saved 200,000, but there's only a limited capacity in the organization for doing projects. 1,720 frontline ideas, even though it contributed only on average 4,600 per idea collectively with lots of participation led to a bigger impact. And so Robinson and Schroeder call that the 80-20 principle. I don't think it's a rule, but they found in a lot of different types of organizations, they started collecting data wherever they came across it and found it to be consistent in services, manufacturing, healthcare, government, lots of different settings. And, and I'll, I'll share some um, data uh, in a minute from another healthcare organization. So they have consistent findings that bottom-up improvement is powerful. That doesn't mean it's easy, but when we talk about change in the organization, change of any type, even personal change, something being factually correct doesn't lead to easy acceptance, right? What's rational, what's logical, what's factually true doesn't necessarily automatically easily happen in an organization. That's why organizational change is so difficult. Let's say about ThetaCare, a healthcare organization that I've visited uh, a number of times over the last uh, eight or nine years. As outlined in the idea-driven organization, and I know this story because I've heard it from ThetaCare's leaders, early days their focus was on projects. 
week-long rapid improvement events that solved important problems. It made an impact on the organization. But in more recent years, as it says in the book, and I've heard John Toussaint, their former CEO, talk about this, that yes, the major improvement projects delivered significant results, but Toussaint estimated that that was only 20% of the health system's overall performance gains. The other 80% came from frontline ideas. Now, I mean, this is an approximation, you know, 80-20 principle, Pareto principle, but the data tends to prove this out. It's, it's not exactly the Pareto principle, but it's close. We're used to hearing about 80-20. And this, I don't think, was self-fulfilling prophecy. This is what they discovered over time. So we might ask the question in the lean world, we'd like to ask why. Why don't we have more bottom-up improvement? Well, I think there's an important lesson if we're looking within an organization, if the old top-down approach tended to include blame and, and other perhaps bad habits. The reason for not having more bottom-up improvement is not the proverbial bad apples. Bruce Hamilton of Toast Kaizen fame, among other things, from gbmp.org, um, says it uh, really well. Many companies assume that the failure of the suggestion box approach is with employees that don't care. But if we dig a little deeper, we find it's the system itself that squashed enthusiasm. So it could be the mechanisms of the suggestion box, not lending uh, a, a good hand to improvement, but there's also the mindsets, right? The problem is not just the box anymore. The problem would be a bulletin board or, or software. It might be the management mindsets. Leaders might not directly say this, it might be implied, it might be subtle. Executives might say, I don't care what employees think. I don't think they have meaningful ideas to contribute. They might think that improvement is the job of the leaders. So we might present data that shows, well, you know, there's a lot of data that shows bottom-up improvement is powerful. So we might say, but we need to improve. And so then the leaders might say, okay, I'm going to tell them to participate in improvement. And I think, well, all right, let's look up dictionary definitions of irony. And I, I didn't mistakenly get a word that was close to irony, but I'm gonna make up my own definition of irony. The definition of irony, pushing the idea of bottom-up improvement in a top-down command and control way. So we talk about the spirit of continuous improvement Telling people to participate is not in the spirit of continuous improvement. When we see cultures of continuous improvement, they are building upon intrinsic motivation. And that might be something new uh, for leaders to, to figure out. So somebody in my position, or if you're watching this from the position of an internal process improvement expert or, or facilitator, I, I don't like the word expert. I'm surprised I said expert there. Um, we might ask why are leaders pushing things in a top-down way? It might, it might be because they know best, but even if that's not the case, there's, there's something that I think is pretty natural for people. I think if, if it wouldn't be such a problem if it wasn't so natural to us, uh, myself included. It's something called the writing reflex, not, not writing with a W, if you're listening and not looking at the screen, the writing reflex with an, with an R. From this methodology, uh, the, the core textbook around this, which I've read uh, and really enjoyed, is called Motivational Interviewing. 
And this is a, an approach that comes from counseling. And, and more specifically, it comes from, of all places, addiction counseling. And I, I took a workshop on this um, a, a week ago and, and you know, run, I run the risk of falling into uh, the trap of um, thinking I know more about this than I do. But th this has all made me really think a lot. And this idea of the writing reflex, as it says in the book here, the desire to fix what seems wrong with people, or we might say with organizations, and to set them promptly on a better course, relying uh, in particular on directing or telling people what to do. Now in counseling, a lot of times the traditional approach would be to tell an addict to stop doing something or to tell them to do something different. But this leads to defensiveness. And I think the same thing happens in organizations. And I've been as guilty of this as anybody, trying to tell leaders how they should behave. You need to encourage people to participate in improvement. They might as likely say, well, no, I don't. If we look at the idea of the, the helper, when they have the writing reflex, they, they think they must confront the person with the reality, provide the solution, and then when you meet resistance, turn up the volume. Let's tell them again, but louder. Let's tell them again that continuous improvement is important, but let's do so more forcefully. This tends not to work, whether it's in the, the clinical counseling setting or in the workplace. People tend to feel bad in response to the writing reflex and causing people to feel bad doesn't help them to change. So this is, I think, a more complex situation. We think we're doing the right thing. And that turns out to be counterproductive. So there might be old habits around top-down management styles. There might be old habits about telling people how to change. And this kind of made me reflect a little bit. Do I spend too much time telling people what to do? Even if I'm correct on some level, I might be hurting the cause. There's another book that I'm only partway through that's about motivational interviewing for leadership. And as it says here, a telling or more directive style is likely to elicit arguments against change, which translates into a decreased likelihood for change. Telling people what to do often leads them to think about why they can't do it, which again is counterproductive. So we need to shift from wanting to be right, and as an engineer and someone with a business background, and I, you know, I've, again, I've been guilty of this at times too. Feeling right about something doesn't really feel good compared to helping people change. So we, again, we might step back and ask why. Why do leaders hold on to their old leadership styles. There's something that comes from the motivational interview approach, and, and I took a workshop with Ron Oslin and Larry Anderson. You can see their website here. Ron is a former Toyota manager, retired early from Toyota, has been teaching these motivational interviewing concepts in different settings. And they have this model called the belief to results model. And I think it's helpful to work backward from the results that we're getting. The results might be bad business performance. Those results are driven by actions, behaviors, assumptions, and beliefs. So I'll, I'll come back to this in a minute. So a leader, we might be talking to them about leadership styles. They might admit, they might say, okay, I know I need to change my leadership style, but dot, dot, dot. This, this, this stage 
of change, which again is naturally occurring and, and nothing uh, to be upset about. We just need to recognize it. It's called ambivalence. People are sort of stuck. So they might be talking out of both sides of their mouth or they're having this conversation within their brain. They might be saying things that we would consider change talk. Okay, I know I need to change my leadership style. There's a desire being stated there. But I'm afraid that staff will walk all over us as leaders if we start asking for their input. This is called sustained talk or talk that maintains the status quo. So when we have this ambivalence, we're trying to talk ourselves into change, but we're also kind of talking ourselves out of it. And this is tough if somebody's trying to change any personal habit or trying to uh, cure themselves of an addiction or bad habit. So this motivational interviewing approach is meant to work with people and help them decide to move from ambivalence to action. When the change talk starts outweighing the sustained talk. So there's some lessons that come from this approach to therapy that I think apply to the workplace. You can't tell people to change. Explaining rationally why they should change tends not to be a helpful strategy. Let's say somebody, a doctor tells a patient they need to lose weight. That might be something, it's probably something the patient already knows rationally, but they're not changing. So we don't blame people for not changing. We try to help them and coaching them through the thought process that gets them to change. So this change talk that people articulate is the best predictor of change. I'm going to start engaging people in improvement. I'm going to leave the office and go do gimbal walks starting tomorrow. It's not as good as action, but it's a predictor of action, this change talk. So as coaches and as leaders, the idea is to draw out as much change talk as possible. And when, again, we tell people to change, it's a natural reaction to start with the sustained talk. We're not ready. It's not the right time. We can't afford it. I'm not confident that we can do it. So we might ask, you know, why do leaders persist with a top-down approach? If we look at this belief to results model, and this is a very helpful exercise to try to sketch something out about a change maybe you are trying to address, not about changing others, something you are trying to change. So when I'd say the organization has poor results, we might measure poor engagement. Actions, think back to the hospital scenario. Well, the executive ordered carpet for the units. That's a very specific action. But then there might be the general behaviors, which are also uh, observable or known. You know, the leaders generally don't visit the units. They generally don't ask for input. What are the assumptions behind this? They might assume that staff don't have ideas. They might assume that people are too busy to participate in improvement. And we might trace back to a belief. The executive might say, I'm smart and successful and have great ideas. I get stuff done. So I decided to have carpet installed. And if we want to help people change, we want to help kind of unravel not just the actions and behaviors, but some of the underlying assumptions. If we change, help people change their own beliefs and assumptions that can lead to different behaviors, different actions, different results. So last week I was at the Lean Coaching Summit in Austin. Great event. There was a panel of women you see pictured here from an organization called Beyond Emancipation. And they work with 
the term emancipation means youths who have aged out of the foster home system. They are legally emancipated. And so a lot of uh, the, these, these children, they're teenagers still, struggle with finding their place in life. One of the women on the panel here, I think it was um, the woman second from right said, I spent eight years telling foster kids what to do and it was exhausting. And I think maybe we feel like that sometimes in uh, the realm of lean and continuous improvement. It's exhausting trying to tell people to change. They've addressed this approach. They've changed their style of coaching in something that's much more participative. And they, they said this, we believe the person closest to the problem is closest to the solution. And I think this is core continuous improvement thinking. This is the core of motivational interviewing, that the person who has the problem is most likely to come up with the solution. Why are they not encouraging continuous improvement and bottom-up improvement? They're really the best position to come up with that solution. John Toussaint, in his book, Management on the Mend, again, thinking back to theta care, there's a, a section here that says, lead with humility. That CEOs and other leaders are generally rewarded, not rewarded, not rewarded for being humble. Leaders are expected to have all the answers and it feels great to make solutions rain down. So it's, it's not as easy as saying, well, these are, these are bad leaders. They've, they've, no, they're good people who have been uh, rewarded for certain behaviors over decades. No person has all the answers. Humility demands we recognize this. And I think this is a connection to motivational interviewing, that as the coach or as a counselor, you don't have the answers to the problems faced by the person you're trying to help. As John writes here, there are times when, you know, he didn't know what the real problems were. My staff knew more than I did, but didn't know all the issues either. So this isn't to say bottom-up improvement means leaving people on their own, it means collaborating with them. It's not telling them what to do, it's not just letting them do whatever they want either. And I thought this line was brilliant, again, from this book. The idea might be difficult for some to admit, but in humility there is great freedom. I just love that expression, the freedom from having to have all the answers. We can stop pretending to know everything. We can walk through our hospitals without offering lectures. So I think, you know, kind of the same idea here. Um, lecturing senior leaders about the way they behave, I don't think has been a very helpful strategy. So if we want to ask why, why don't senior leaders change their behaviors? Well, we can't tell executives to change either. Ron Oslin uses the phrase, and he's trademarked this phrase, addicted to the status quo. Leaders, maybe because they've been successful doing certain things, are addicted to those old behaviors. And the term addiction is not meant to be judgmental. The, the term addiction just basically means you keep doing things even though you know there are negative consequences. And that might be true here. Leaders know on some level they should be getting people involved in improvement, but they don't for some reasons. Right, so when we look at these results, executives are not actively engaged in lean or CI. Some of our actions, again, we're not looking at what they need to do, what can we do differently as people who are trying to coach and influence executives. One of those actions is, well, we're trying to train them on lean. 
maybe too much of the focus is on logical, rational understanding instead of on uh, behavior change. So if we look at some of our behaviors, maybe the emphasis is on teaching, telling, lecturing, judging. Maybe some of our assumptions are, well, you know, the executives have other priorities or, you know, they don't care about this stuff or maybe we assume they can't change. Some of those beliefs, again, maybe ties back to what the executives might think. As a change agent, I'm smart, successful, and have great ideas. I get stuff done. So we can ask, why don't executives choose to change? We might ask, or they're asking, why don't staff participate in improvement? But what we might really be asking is, why don't they accept my improvement? Why don't they go along with my program? And I guess that question can be pointed um, at frontline staff or executives. So I think there's another question we could ask. Are we pushing change or creating pull for change? Are we pushing change in a top-down way at our employees? and then getting upset at their natural resistance? Are we pushing change at leaders saying, you need to do lean, you need to embrace continuous improvement? So we can ask maybe a different question, why don't staff choose to participate in improvement? Because, well, we say it this way, why do they choose not to participate? Not doing something is often a choice. Executives choosing not to embrace and encourage continuous improvement is a choice. So we might ask, do we have resistors in the organization? The dictionary defines resistor as a device with a, oh, I, I did it again. And you're maybe groaning at me again. The worst thing about doing, well, see, the, no, the best thing about doing a webinar is that if nobody's laughing, I can't hear um, the laugh of, the, the lack of laughter. But back to the real point at hand, resistance to change, not electrical resistance. Peter Schultes, such a brilliant line here. People don't resist change, they resist being changed. Think about this again. People don't resist change, they resist being changed. So think, okay, well, are people resistant to change? Does that mean people are resistant to my idea? Again, are we pushing change on them or drawing out change from people in the organization? I love this quote. Um, Stephen Perry, uh, who's from uh, the UK, he's, uh, he's Welsh, he lives in, in London. Uh, I've met Stephen a couple of times. He's very thought-provoking. We had a Twitter exchange, friendly exchange back and forth. And I'll give credit to Stephen. I, I'm pretty sure he types this into Twitter. Their resistance to change is directly proportional to your lack of leadership. I'm like, well, that's provocative. Wait, he's blaming the leaders. I'm like, well, but you know, if the leaders are blaming the employees, that's not good. We shouldn't be blaming leaders. But I think one of the lessons here is if if we find ourselves Upset with others for not changing, we should look at ourselves and what we can do. Oh, I was going to jump to this, <laughs> to this meme. Their resistance to change is directly proportional to your lack of leadership. You might say, ouch, baby. And that's not Stephen's accent. I can't do the uh, Austin Powers accent. But if we talk about engagement, a lot of times people say, we want more engagement. Definition of this, even though engagement is... Uh, 
is a noun. It's really the act, which makes me think of a verb, the act of engaging or the state of being engaged. So what does, there's a picture of what engagement might look like. What does engage mean? And how does this relate to improvement? We want to occupy the attention or efforts of somebody else. We engage them in conversation, not a monologue. A webinar here, this is a monologue. We want to engage a worker. We want to engage their attention and interest, which often means I'm not going to force you to pay attention to this. I want to find things that are of interest to you. We want to engage everyone, maybe not just not to please them, but to engage them. And if there's a pledge or a promise as an organization that we're going to engage people in improvement, not once, but over time. Meg Wheatley, another um, great management thinker said, uh, I might be paraphrasing, people own what they create. And the idea of motivational interviewing, there's a lot of research that shows Human beings are hardwired to prefer their own ideas over those produced by others. So when we're telling people to change, that doesn't activate their brains the same way as people coming up with their own ideas does. So if we look at, if we look at brains and functional MRI scans, when the ideas came from within the individual considering change or self-generated, the part of the brain that influences change became more active. So it's a very scientific way of saying people get more energized by their own ideas and when they talk about their ideas and they get into change talk, they're more likely to actually change, which is what we want as facilitators, coaches, change agents, leaders, what have you. So again, bottom-up improvement is powerful but yet again, I'll, I'll kind of throw out the idea that this phrase being factually correct doesn't lead to easy acceptance. Again, somebody struggling with addiction. It's factually correct that if they eat better and exercise more, they will lose weight, but that doesn't mean somebody chooses to accept that idea. Improvement is powerful when we see it. We talked a little bit about the ROI of improvement. You can read more about this on the Connexus website. One in three improvements from our customers has a financial impact. And it's not all about ROI. 54% of all improvements impact quality, 13% affect safety, 54% affect staff and customer satisfaction. And I think there's the point that just the act of participating in improvement increases staff satisfaction. And then we can do things through improvement to make the workplace less frustrating. So there's kind of a double benefit there. We crunch numbers and look at, at data, and this is a, a little bit outdated. You can find customer, current customer data on our website. But we looked at one year's worth of customer improvement, 4,000 ideas, $30 million in impact. I believe that number now is over uh, $250 million of impact. 2.5% of ideas had an impact of $10,000 or more. 1.4% had an impact of $100,000 or more. So if people think bottom-up ideas are, are nice to have, we might try to show them data that, that shows small ideas can actually have a big impact. But again, that being factually true doesn't lead to easy acceptance. So one of our customers, Academic Medical Center, had an endocrinology clinic, and they realized patients were getting their prescriptions filled outside of the hospital. 
Now, I, I guarantee you that none of the clinicians there were thinking in terms of ROI. They weren't using phrases like revenue capture or revenue leakage that would be used by finance folks. They were trying to help the patients get their prescriptions in a way that was more convenient. So the little idea was, well, let's educate patients about our in-house pharmacy capabilities. We're not going to twist their arm. We can't tell them what to do. <laughs> we can inform them that if you choose, we have a pharmacy down the hall, you can get your prescription without driving and parking someplace else. We've got better clinical integration, however you want to try to make the case. So that little change, a sentence or two to a patient during each encounter basically costs nothing to implement other than the time we spent talking, they spent talking about it. In the first three months, 167 patients have been switched to the in-house pharmacy, 409 prescriptions, $638,000 in revenue. That's $2.5 million that had otherwise been walking out the door. The ROI on that improvement was basically infinite. And that $2.5 million improvement pays for many, many other improvements. We see continuous improvements, small improvements. Putting up a sign that shows a, a duck indicating when um, the baby's last been washed in the NICU. A nurse inventing a different type of mattress cover that helps protect babies um, and it makes it easier for nurses to use mattresses that protect babies from pressure ulcers. These are meaningful improvements. They might not have a hard measurable ROI, but they matter. So think if you had 2,000 improvement ideas in a single year, let's say if you're an organization with 1,000 people, that's just two ideas each. That's, that's easy to do, that's possible. You could expect 50 ideas worth $10,000, 28 ideas worth $100,000. So we have a big webinar library with a lot of webinars on the topic of how to engage people. You can find that by going to kinexus.com slash webinars, click on um, the webinars on demand, or faces look kind of red for some reason there. If you have a flood of ideas, a high volume of ideas, we have a webinar on that topic. Congratulations, you have lots of employee ideas. Now what? So I think one of the changes here, though, if we want more bottom-up improvement, if we want more organizations to embrace bottom-up improvement, we try to shift from telling to evoking change. A telling statement would be, you need to implement this. Employees might say, nope. Executives might say, nope, ain't going to happen. We might say, and it might be factually correct, you need to improve. The organization says, nope, not going to do it. You need to make your work easier. You think, well, wait a minute, I'm helping the employees. It's better if their work is easier. I'm telling them to do that. They might just as likely say, nope. And this is, again, that natural reaction to the writing reflex. Telling people what to do triggers our brains to say, nope, not going to, can't do it. We get sustained talk instead of change talk. So we want to evoke change, to call forth, to bring to mind. Um, I don't think we're trying to uh, evoke evil spirits. Continuous improvement is a good thing. Uh, that's a weird part of that definition. But evoking style elicits information from others about the what, why, how, and when, 
instead of telling them what to do. This might sound like lean thinking, lean problem-solving styles. Evoking questions might be more like, what do you think we could implement? What possible improvements are important to you? Why is it important to you to improve? Questions like this end up being more effective, and they fall into what's described as the spirit of MI, the spirit of motivational interviewing. This reminds me of what I've heard described as the spirit of Kaizen or the spirit of Lean, that if you're using the tools and tactics without the right spirit, you're probably less likely to succeed. So what's that spirit of MI? The spirit of collaboration between the practitioner and the client. It's not an expert relationship. It's a, a partnership. You're evoking and drawing out ideas about change. You're emphasizing the autonomy of the client, which to me, this lines up with the, the lean Toyota principle of respect for people. We are all independent, autonomous adults. We might all work for the same organization, which is a choice. Coming to work is a choice. Now you might say, I need to come to work. Okay, fair enough. But everyone has autonomy and we practice compassion in the process. Let's not be, and I'm, I'm partly talking to myself here, let's not be as judgmental when people don't embrace continuous improvement. Your MI hat, if you will, includes an approach that emphasizes partnership, acceptance, compassion, evocation. I think this lines up with lean thinking and Kaizen thinking. Partnership, acceptance, compassion, and evocation. So this idea of acceptance is, I think, hard to embrace. A translation of this from the clinical setting would be to say, and, and to mean it, I accept your choice to not encourage bottom-up improvement. Acceptance doesn't mean I agree, but I accept your freedom to make this choice. And if I don't do that, I can't be a collaborative partner in evoking change. I might say, I don't think I've ever said this before, I accept your choice to not participate in Kaizen. The idea that Kaizen is voluntary is an idea I've talked about a lot. We don't force improvement because that tends to be kind of counterproductive. We want to help people articulate their reasons why they choose to participate in Kaizen. So as we start to wrap up here, there's a couple of key questions that come from the motivational interviewing approach. A counselor, therapist might use these questions when talking with a patient. I think we could use these questions when talking to others about change and bottom-up improvement, and even ask ourselves. On a scale of zero to 10, how important is it, there's a typo there, it should say right now for you to change on a zero to 10 scale. And somebody might say, you know, if we ask how important is it for you to embrace bottom-up improvement, someone might say mm, a six. That shows they're in that naturally occurring state of ambivalence. The follow-up question this I think is fascinating. The follow-up question is, why did you say six instead of zero? And they'll, they'll, the response to that question is almost always change talk. Well, it's important that our 
organization performs better and bottom-up improvement will help that happen. If you ask, why did you say six instead of 10? You're gonna hear the barriers and the excuses and the reasons why they don't. That's sustained talk. So again, as a helper, as a coach, as a counselor, you want to evoke change talk. Similar question, how important is to you? We might ask on a scale of zero to 10, how confident are you that you can make this change? And again, we'd ask, why do you say seven instead of zero? The answer to that question is change talk. And again, more change talk means we're more likely to see change and action. So final thought here. I think this is a helpful question. And I've tried to reflect on this a lot. Are we pushing change or creating pull for change? We might have something that's correct and awesome and helpful, but if we push those helpful good ideas on others, we shouldn't be surprised when they're resistant. We can try to figure out what to do to create an environment where people choose to change. So final thought, I, want to, I do want to recommend this book. If you want to learn more about motivational interviewing, um, go to Ron Austin's website. I would read this book. Yeah, if you really want a deeper dive, you can read the psychology textbook, but I think this book, at least so far, is a good recap of motivational interviewing, where it comes from, what the principles are, and how we could apply it in the workplace. It's a very inexpensive book. Um, I was able to download it for free through Kindle Unlimited. You could, if you don't have a membership there, it's only $2.99. Um, so with that, I'm going to hand things over to Greg. He's got a few announcements, and then I think we, we have Q&A, and we'll find ways to extend um, the Q&A uh, if it goes beyond the top of the hour. Thanks, Mark. That was great. I, I appreciated kind of hearing your updated thoughts on this. We, we talk about continuous improvement and bottom-up improvement all the time at Kinexus. I don't think you've given this webinar in some time, and one of the reasons why I love doing webinars and kind of thinking through them is, or watching them participating is, is it gives you some real structured thought process, some real intense time to think about a topic that sometimes you might only give a, a minute here or, or five minutes there. So congrats on putting that together. Um, Thanks. With regard to announcements, I, I met, um, I met Warren, we don't have his name up here, we just have his picture. Warren Stone. <laughs> um, um, I met Warren at the Lean Summit conference in the Catalysis conference in Palm Springs in June and was just blown away by his energy and his thoughts about improvement. So I'm really looking forward to this webinar. I'm glad he has agreed to um, present on August 10th. So please make sure to sign up for that. And uh, shall we go to the next slide? Yep, and I think uh, oh. Warren is on the line today. So hi, Warren. Thanks in advance for our next month. Before I tell you about our, our Ask Us Anything series, um, please, at this time, if you've been holding your questions back, put them in. We've already got a few teed up, but I'd love to take the full time that we have answering any questions that you guys might have. So. Mark and I started an experiment uh, approximately 13 episodes ago 
where Mark said, hey, why don't we just have this open 30 minute, almost like office hours where we just take questions and we, we riff on them very low preparation. We just kind of off the cuff, we, we end up do reviewing the questions and, and talking a little bit about them. But, but really it's compared to a webinar, there's very little preparation that we do and they're super informal. So please join us toss a question in. We are making sure to answer all of the questions. Oftentimes we put them in small little three to five minute videos afterwards as well. So please join us for our next Ask Us Anything or AUA as we like to put on our, on our calendar. It's gonna be August 15th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Additionally, if you wanna see the type of questions that we've answered in the past, all the previous episodes are available on our website and YouTube. And for the next slide, I, I really want to remind everyone, we put a ton of effort into this as, as a company. Our mission at Kinexus is to spread continuous improvement. The main way that we fund our activities is through selling software. But we put a lot of energy into things that are, are outside of our software. Part of that are these webinars. Part of that is our blog. We have guest blog writers, we have guest webinar. We're, we're really trying to push the story forward for everyone's journey. So everyone is sharing what they've learned because this hasn't been written 30 years ago and we're just kind of doing a rinse and repeat. As, as we're learning, as we're changing as people, as our organizations are changing, as we're adapting to new environments and new technologies, the story is changing and we're creating the story and we make that story available in a lot of different ways. So please check out all of our prior webinars as well as our blog. We have two, two blogs. One is an improvement blog, which is really geared for everyone. And then we have a second customer blog, which is geared mostly for, for folks using Kinexus themselves. Yeah, check that out. Um, lots of good stuff there. Oh, I forgot there's a slide about podcasts. We have podcasts. Ah, yet another area that we're putting more and more effort into. So not only will we put webinars and ask us anything's on podcasts, but Mark is doing a lot of particular Kinexus or specific Kinexus interviews, things that have come up with people that we've either interacted with or our customers and telling their stories. So please subscribe to the podcast. We love when people give us five stars on the podcast. It helps more people find out about us. So if you are enjoying the podcast, then, then please rank us as well or review us as well. So that kind of concludes the, the formal part of this presentation. We're gonna move into questions at this time. So toss your questions in and I'm gonna start with the first question. Okay, Mark? Go ahead. So how does a department of six performance improvement specialists support a team of 3000 plus individuals in the bottom up approach to continuous improvement? Is there an organizational design that supports this concept better than others? Uh, so my first, that's a great question. My first thought is, um, you know, this organization's in a better position than an organization that has one performance improvement specialist who sometimes asks to do uh, a pretty uh, uh, impossible thing of, you know, change the organization, be, uh, be the lone wolf. Um, you know, I don't know if it's so much about organizational design as it is, uh, you know, about leadership behaviors. 
to encourage bottom-up improvement, continuous improvement. Um, you know, I feel I feel the writing reflex kick in to try to give an answer. I mean, if the, you know, if I was actually having a conversation with the person asked the question, you know, I might, you know, sort of try to draw out, um, you know, what, why is it important um, to support improvement? Why is it important to the organization? Um, try to understand, um, you know, what are the, what are some of the things they've done? What have they made progress with? I mean, I think at some point we talk about barriers and try to see you know, if the organization has ambivalence about doing this. How do we get leaders talking about um, how important it is to improve? I mean, and that, none of this is rocket science, but you know, I think it leaves us scratching our heads why people aren't doing this. So I, you know, I think one of the you know, reflections from today to you know, a team of six, um, are, are, are they, I don't think, there, there's no magical structure that you know, can be more effective at telling people how to embrace improvement. I, I think it's a matter of, you know, talking with leaders. If that commitment isn't there, how do you build that commitment and how do, you, how do they decide to cascade that through the organization? So I think a lot of times the PI team has been put in the position of saying, you need to have the answers instead of helping others develop answers that make sense to them. I think it's great, and if I can interject here, also, Mark, I'll I'll take a as we often do, try to kind of go on the other side of the spectrum of this, and and so and and kind of tactically answer this. So when I think of okay, so three thousand individuals, six six experts, in in some cases that ratio is better than most ratios of where I've seen deep deployments of bottom-up efforts. So we have a, a number of, of Kinexus customers that are completely spread over very large organizations. We, and I'm just coming off, off of the cuff, uh, one organization, 2,500 people with 1.5 FTEs that is supporting. Another organization, 1,500 people with um, one point, maybe two FTEs. Another one that's 11,000 people with about 12 FTEs. So that ratio of, you know, whether it's 500 to one or 1,000 to one, is kind of in line with with what we see in general. Yeah. I think if if you're thinking about this from a from a bottom up standpoint, you're you're really needing to target the middle level management. You you I'm almost need to not focus on the frontline staff at all. Let let the middle level managers um, run with that. So maybe a 3,000 person organization has I don't know 150 locations or, or 200 locations or departments. So so mm -hmm. what we what we typically Find, and first of all, Mark and I could probably spend an hour talking about this, and so we could probably spend multiple hours talking about this, but kind of some of the principles that we typically find working is initially um, keep it simple, stupid. So if you're, if you're looking for <laughs> finding and implementing frontline um, Im improvements, make sure that you, you keep um, the, the capture of it very, very simple and make sure you're focusing your time on the middle managers so you are teaching them some basic behaviors on how to respond to these and then you're really focusing on kind of these low risk um, low cost improvements so you're completing a high percentage of them yeah. then as you you go through all of the areas of organization that are that are pulling for this for you to come in then you'll move into the organizations that are kind of ambivalent and then you'll move into parts and locations that are almost resisting. And so 
I mean, this might take an organization three years. It might take them 18 months. It might take them five years. It, um, the speed is, is a little bit um, um, different. Now, you know, Mark has gone and, and does Kaizen workshops where he, he'll work with a, a team of CI folks, for instance, and, and this can be done internally. It doesn't have to be done with Mark, but Mark, Mark, Mark does this where he'll go on site and teach a team of CI folks how to, how to do a deployment at a department. And then those CI folks can develop their own deployment. And so they will end up creating almost like a PDCA cycle and a, and a checklist of how you spread this into different locations. And I would be remiss if I don't say, I don't think six CI people are gonna be able to, to monitor and to coach and to figure out where to go without a supporting technology. So Kinexus from, from its very first days was designed to help an organization really scale their, their CI or PI team. And it will allow you guys, when you are across 40 different departments to figure out, okay, who needs my help? Who's doing good? Who's not doing good? But um, I, I know who put the question in and I'll make sure to, to reach out to kind of talk a little bit more about that and connect you with other folks who have done it successfully. Yeah, I just have one, one other thought. Um, it's fine with the, uh, the KISS acronym, you can also say keep it simple, smarty, because sometimes ah. smart, smart people make things too complicated. So um, one other thought, you know, if, if six people in any organization are trying to tell people how to do things, telling means then you need to go and check for adherence to what you've told them to do. And I don't think that's a very scalable model. We have a flood more of new questions coming through now. Um, we have a question that says, what is the best approach to embedding a culture of CI approaching CI in general for a new manager and a new department with, with new staff? Yeah, maybe let's go through some of these rapid fire. Maybe we can do deeper answers in our next Ask Us Anything. Um, oh, my, short answer, my, my short answer to this is that if you are a new manager, if, if there's no history, there's far less baggage to try to get through. So I think for a leader to try to set the tone from the beginning that as the leaders, they don't have all the answers. They're not just going to push change top down, even within a department. Starting to engage people from the get-go, I think that's a huge opportunity. It's harder, I think, sometimes for a leader with established habits to um, get people to believe there's a that, that, that they've changed their spots, if you will. In, in my one-line or run-on sentence answer for this is, Mark and I, several years ago, put together a series of 12 two to three minute videos where we've identified what we think are the best principles to doing exactly that. So you can find them on our website and I think that's a great place to start. Yeah. How to get critical resources to agree to work on optimizing existing processes that are good enough and better than the way it was when they are already overcommitted to growth and new product development. Right, so that might be a situation where um, the ambivalence um, could really tip in the sustaining category. So if you were to ask people, how, like, how important is it to you to change on a scale of zero to 10, they might say one. You know, so you would ask, well, why did you say one instead of zero? And you're gonna look for that, that, that nugget of reason for change and try to build upon that. Um, I, yeah, I mean, if people think it's good enough, um, that, that if there's no reason to change, they're going to choose not to change. So I mean, we can't, and I think part of the lesson from motivational interviewing is you can't tell them a reason, you have to uh, 
um, help them discover a reason. The next comment is a compliment on a, a great webinar, but I'm, I'm bringing it up so, because the, the person is from Moscow, Russia. And Pavel, who I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, it has, has Pavel yeah. has um, tuned in, and it's it's so exciting that we can transcend politics, the CI community, and how we're just spreading um, yeah. our ideas and, and connecting folks that that all believe in a better way that we could all be working together. So thank great. you very much for joining in. It's great to have a global audience for things like this. So thank you. And then. Finally, we're going to continue on the one-sentence answers here. Um, I would say the 80-20 in improvement results as reported by ThetaCare is not intuitive to many leadership teams who expect big projects to deliver most of the results. What can I do to help leaders understand this? Well, so I think if, if we're trying to get leaders to change, understanding is uh, just one piece of the puzzle. So we can present them the data and evidence that shows that in many organizations, the 80-20 principle applies. That doesn't mean that um, the understanding will lead to action. I think we fall in a similar trap with lean. If we train people and give them understanding about lean, then therefore they will go and quote unquote get lean. But um, I think we need to kind of talk through motivations for change, not just understanding. My take on this, Mark, is I'm, I'm immediately thinking of Moneyball, and it would almost be like having a baseball team where you say, I only want my big hitters to go up and hit and to only hit the, you know, the home run, and everyone else that's going to go up and hit, they can just take three strikes and, and sit down because we certainly don't care about little base hits and doubles and whatnot. And so I think that obviously that would be a ridiculous way to play baseball. And I think that that's exactly what we find in, in CI, that, that one, all those base hits add up, right? They, they give you a championship team. Um, and then number two, you never know when you're going to go up to bat and, um, and find the example you gave where it looked seemingly like a tiny, simple, free change to make that resulted in huge ROI. Yeah. Well, great. That is... Um, about three minutes after our time, hopefully that didn't mess up your schedule, but I want to thank everyone so much for, for joining us and uh, Mark and I at the Kinexus team. I always like to, to end with the webinars by saying there is no better day than today to start spreading continuous improvement. So, so please start. Mark, any final words for you? I, I, I love that sentiment and um, we certainly wish everyone um, great success in their uh, improvement efforts and, and their organizational change efforts. I would love to follow up and chat with anybody if you'd like uh, via email or Twitter. Love to hear your feedback on um, thoughts and everything that, um, that I shared today.